Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special Sundance 2022 documentary lineup preview. Leading us through this preview is Sundance senior programmer nonfiction, Basil Tsiokos. And I'm really thrilled that Basil was able to sit down with me today and go through the 30 some odd documentaries that will be screening at the upcoming Sundance Film Festival later this month. A bit of background about Basil. Basil has been with Sundance since 2005, where he began as a programming associate. He was most recently with Doc NYC, where he served as director of programming since 2014. He was also with the Nantucket Film Festival as its film program director. He was the longtime artistic and executive director of NewFest, the New York LGBT Film Festival. Basil also has a website, whatnottodoc.com, in which he writes about documentaries daily. So I would highly recommend that you check out his website. Coming up, my conversation with Basil Tsiokos, senior programmer, nonfiction, Sundance Film Festival. Basil Tsiokos, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this year's Sundance documentary lineup, as I am every year. Full disclosure, Sundance is my favorite film festival, and apologies to all the other festivals, including the ones that I work for. (laughs) We like to hear that. (laughs) So before we get to the 2022 Sundance documentary lineup, I thought we would just take a quick look at this year's Oscar shortlist. And, you know, reasons for doing that with you are that you were director of programming at Doc NYC for quite a few years. You guys have your own shortlist. And also Sundance historically has proven to be a great indicator of films that do end up on the shortlist. In fact, I think this year, six of the 15 had their world premieres at Sundance 2021. That's right. Yeah. What do you think will end up being the five nominees if you'd care to prognosticate? Sure. And I'll just say, of course, that these are just my own personal predictions. Um, I'm not speaking for Sundance, where we see many paths for success for films, not just awards recognition, which is always great, of course, for my own sort of prognostication here. I feel pretty secure on four of them. And so those would be some Sundance alums, actually, Summer of Soul, Flea, and Fayadai. I also feel really strongly about The Rescue. I think those four are ones that should be the, in the top four. The fifth slot is a little bit more up in the air for me. I could see it going to Procession, Ascension, or The First Wave. Those are probably the ones that I think have the best shot. If I had to absolutely make a guess right now, I would probably say Procession, the Netflix power. Those are all great films. We will see. Let's jump in here and talk about Sundance. But before we get to this year's lineup, I did want to ask you how the programming process works at Sundance and just what the timeline looks like. We opened submissions in early June. Even before that time, our programmers have been watching films at other festivals. We are attending markets and watching works in progress and taking meetings with filmmakers. And we track projects all year round. So we have an extensive tracking list, know what's in the mix, talk to sales agents, talk to international film commissions and things like that. So we're pretty aware of what's out there. That said, submissions are the place where we really love to find the undiscovered gems, to find the sort of filmmakers that aren't tapped in necessarily to the grants and the funds and all that kind of stuff. And it's always nice to be able to find somebody like that. 
the films go through the submission review process. That can involve pre-screeners before they reach the programmers themselves, just because we do receive a lot of films. We have trusted pre-screeners that kind of let us know what is the strongest of the batch, and then those go along to the programmers. For doc programming in particular, we have a small team of doc programmer specialists, as it were, myself and a few colleagues. Similarly, on the fiction side, there are programmers that are focused on the fiction side, some focused specifically on international, some focused on the US, some focused on genre films, et cetera. So we all have our own specializations. But on the doc side, we will watch films ourselves, we'll straight from the submissions, things that we recognize, things that we've been tracking. And then we'll also watch the films that have been pushed forward by the pre-screeners. That takes us really through even the beginning of November. So it's a very long process for us. During that time, we have regular meetings amongst the doc programming team to talk about what has popped, how we feel about things. If somebody watches something and might not be right for me, but I see something in it. I may not love this, but I do think my colleague might like it. So we're always in a spirit of generosity around programming. We don't want to just kill something right off the bat. If we see that there's that somebody else might respond to this, then we ask somebody else to take a check on it. I might not love this particular subject, so I might say, hey, Sudeep or Anya, who are on our team, take a look at this. Is there something to this that I'm not seeing? Ultimately, we come together and decide on sort of what are the films that we feel most strongly about to bring to the larger programming team. Because the thing that not everybody understands about Sundance is that I don't just program documentary features and my fiction colleagues don't just program fiction features. We program the festival as a whole together. So I watch all the fiction, they watch all the docs, and we come together in November to have that final lineup. On the path towards November, though, we have regular meetings to talk through and watch the films that have been rising the top on both sides. We weigh in there. We do very few early invitations. We want to know what's out there first. We want to have a, a clear sense of the sort of range of work. But we like to take temperature checks, as it were, to see how we feel about this. You know, the doc team loved this film. Is it going to play as strongly for the fiction side as well? And then ultimately, those films that kind of, you know, pass muster, then go further and we have further conversations. And when we come together with the final selections, if a film is under consideration for us, it is watched multiple times by multiple um, programmers before it makes it onto the board as a final selection. And again, that takes place like in November. So we're talking June to November officially, but really it's a year-round process because even now I'm tracking films for next year. I learned something here, which is I didn't realize that you're watching all the fiction and all the fiction programmers are yep. watching the documentaries as well. And it, I think it really speaks to not just the collaborative nature of the Sundance programming process, but that Sundance is known rightfully so as a place where documentaries and fiction are kind of on the same level and given equal treatment. So that's great to hear. For sure. Yep. And just briefly, this is your first year, I believe, as a senior programmer. Was anything different about your experience this year, other than the fact that you, I guess, had to move from uh, one coast to the other? It was my first year as a senior programmer. I've been affiliated with the festival for 16 years or so as a programming associate. It's a very different role. My previous role was that I would identify films, kind of a higher level screener in certain ways and being in touch with the senior programmers and other programmers of the festival, but I wasn't part of the final selection process. So it is a very different role, a lot more work in certain ways, uh, and which is why it's a full-time position and, and why I did leave my other positions at other festivals. But it was really great because I knew my fellow programmers from the many years that I've been with the festival. So that transition was very easy. Like we know each other, we know our tastes. I'm the new guy, but at the same time, I'm not. So let's talk about this year's lineup. Just say that between the fiction and the documentary side, there were 3,762 feature film submissions. What were some of the documentary section statistics? 
We ultimately have selected a total of about 80 or so feature films, of which nearly half are nonfiction. And of those on the U.S. documentary competition side, 77% or 10 of the 13 directors in this year's competition identify as women, 30% identify as people of color, 7% identify as LGBTQ. And on the world cinema side, 45% of the directors in that section identify as women and 36% identify as people of color. It's something we think about. We certainly are very cognizant of gender parity, try to get there. In some cases, like the US documentary competition, it just works out that it's far more than gender parity. With the world cinema, it's very close. And then other demographic information around this, we certainly try our best to locate work and position work in a way that does demonstrate the diversity of our world. We are not able necessarily to get a 50-50 split, but it's something we definitely think about and try to champion as much work as possible that's not just from one perspective. The other thing I noticed this year in terms of diversity is there are a lot of newer filmmakers who we haven't seen before at Sundance or necessarily at other festivals mixed in with some veterans. Absolutely. There are a lot of first-timers. At least 50% of both documentary competitions include projects with at least one debut feature director. And other sections also include several first-time directors. I'm not even just talking about first-time to Sundance, but like first-time feature directors. That's always exciting. That was also the case last in last year's program. I don't know what that means exactly, other than we love to be able to champion and, and discover new voices. We love our alumni filmmakers. We love our established filmmakers. But there's always room for us to be able to find those new voices to add to the field and to add to our industry to be able to tell these stories that others aren't necessarily telling. Films at Sundance are organized into sections. As far as documentaries go, there are two competitive juried documentary sections, the U.S. Documentary Competition and the World Cinema Documentary Competition. There are also documentaries that can be found in the premiere section, the next section, and then I think we have one each this year in Spotlight, Midnight, and one special screening. That's right. So let's go ahead and jump in and talk about the U.S. documentary section, always one of the most anticipated sections at Sundance. For our listeners, we won't have time to talk about every film, so apologies to the filmmakers and the audience for perhaps leaving a few of these out, but definitely check out the full lineup at Sundance.org. In the U.S. documentary section, we have nine that have been announced. What can you tell us about a couple of the titles in this section? I'm excited by the, the films overall, but certainly in this section as well. I'd love to highlight a few of them. We're not supposed to really play favorites, but one that we are all jazzed about is Sarah Dosa's Fire of Love. This is just a beautiful film. It is archivally driven. It's entirely archive, I should say. And it's based on the work of two volcanologists who traveled the world trying to learn about volcanoes and to teach the world uh, to prepare them for emergencies but also just to capture the beauty and the destruction of these volcanoes. They filmed everything they did. It's a, it was a couple. Maurice, the male of the couple, would do talk, the talk show circuit to tell people about it. And his wife, Katya, would do some of that as well. But she loved just running around and finding out as much as possible, researching these things. So they both documented their work. And it's just the most stunning footage. It's one of the most like sumptuous looking films that we have in this year's lineup. And for those who remember The Seer and the Unseen from... 2019, that was Sarah Dose's most recent film. 
I'd also like to point out a really a lovely debut film called Free Chal Suli about a miscarriage of justice that took place in the 1970s when a Korean immigrant was wrongly imprisoned for a Chinatown murder in San Francisco, largely based on the eyewitness identification of Caucasian people who could not tell the differences between Asian features. What, what his case ended up becoming was a rallying cry to a nascent pan-Asian American grassroots activism. He became a symbol for the movement to free him, but also to point out the sort of injustices that were being done against people of color and specifically Asians and Asian Americans. The film is really a, a beautiful portrait, not only of the story, but also of the downsides of becoming a symbol and the pressures of becoming a symbol to a movement. Similar to a film that we showed at Sundance several years ago, Crip Camp, it kind of shows how one sort of incident becomes an impetus for other people to join in and become a social justice activists, lawyers, other sort of roles that take human rights and social justice seriously. So it's a really fascinating story that has largely been forgotten by a wider audience. I think Asian American activists certainly know the story, but it's something that we're really happy to be able to remind people about and rediscovered history, as it were. As a native San Franciscan, this is not a story that I was familiar with growing up. And certainly there has been a ton of discrimination against Asian Americans in Chinatown in San Francisco. This is a story that definitely needs to get out there. I was intrigued to see that Margaret Brown has a new film. Yeah, Descendant. She has been making films for many, many years. This is, I think, her finest. It is based on the story of the Clotilda, which was the last slave ship that came to the Americas, and it came to the Americas illegally after slavery was abolished. It came to this community that is really a, a place which is still marked by slavery in certain ways and by segregation. It's an area which is Margaret's home state. It looks at the history and the myth around the Clotilda for the longest time. Because it was an illegal operation, it was buried. The ship itself was literally buried off sea somewhere and was not found for generations. This film tells us what happens when it is discovered and then who tries to claim ownership of it, how the local community, the descendants of the slaves that were on the, the Clotilda are involved or not involved in the process. It's a really interesting film that looks at the legacy of slavery and then who gets to tell the stories and who gets to, in certain ways, benefit from this history and this rediscovery. That's a really fascinating story and it's just beautifully told. I Didn't See You There is a film by Reed Davenport that I've been hearing about for a year or two. It's finally going to come out, so I'm really excited to see that one. We're excited about that one too. Reed is a really gifted storyteller. For those listeners that do not know, Reed is a filmmaker who uses a wheelchair for a lot of his mobility issues. And he has been telling stories for many years now about people with disability and trying to foreground and make this disability visible. In this film, which is his feature debut, he's made many shorts before, he is essentially trying to demonstrate what his perspective of the world is without himself necessarily being in the film. So it's shot from the point of view of him in his wheelchair, and it sort of shows his experience of the world. At the same time, as he's making this film, a circus tent goes up in his Oakland neighborhood, um, again, another Bay Area connection, and that prompts a meditation on the legacy and the, the practice of freak shows. As your listeners probably know, the practice of putting atypical people on display in circus environments for the general paying public to gawk at. 
So he thinks about that sort of legacy and, and the, the way that disability was foregrounded in that kind of a freak show setting and what that means and how that has affected our own way of looking at people with disabilities and also looking at the, that visibility, but also the invisibility, how he traverses the streets of Oakland and how people ignore him or put barriers in his way without really thinking about it. So it's a really fascinating look at the both the dual visibility and invisibility of disability from the perspective of a filmmaker in a wheelchair as he goes about his daily life. So Shalini Kantaya, who directed Coded Bias, which was at Sundance in 2020, she also has a new film. Shalini's film TikTok Boom is about TikTok, an app that I do not use personally, but we know that it is the most popular social media application in the world. And it looks at it in the breadth of the different ways that it's used. So it looks at creators on there, everything from folks that are demonstrating their music, their dance, other artistic endeavors, et cetera, to those that are using it for more political purposes. But it also looks at the algorithm behind TikTok, how it is strangely uh, addictive, how it's so smart and figures out what you want to look at and what you don't want to look at in seconds. And it looks at the big question and where TikTok became such a flashpoint in the last presidential election around its ownership by China. China at a certain point. And so it looks at this app as a sort of microcosm of American society, of our relationship to technology, and also just the way that we put a lot of our trust into technology and the, the sort of dangers and limits of that. It goes beyond just being like, a, oh, TikTok doc. Like it's a lot more than that. And she does a really a smart job of assembling the various elements that make TikTok so popular for so many very different reasons. And also she very smartly chooses a, a, a cadre of protagonists largely young people of color to sort of demonstrate what they get out of it and how they are able to use this tool to interact with the world on their own terms. Sundance is known for great films about social justice and human rights. I see that Tia Lesson is directing a film with a filmmaker named, is it Emma Pildes? Yes, that's correct. And of course, Tia is known for a long career in documentary she and Carl Deal made Trouble the Water, which is a grand jury prize winner from Sundance in 2008. What can you tell us about The Janes? The Janes is a really great film. It's another one of those films, similar to Free Chelsea Lee, which tells you a bit of hidden history or forgotten history in certain ways. The Janes were a group of activists, underground abortion providers in Chicago in the years before Roe versus Wade. They set up a system where they helped women who were not able to obtain abortions legally to get them. They found medical professionals who, who could do the procedure, who could also teach them how to do the procedure and set up a system, an underground system where they were able to have women find them and provide the service that was absolutely essential. It's part of a theme that's running through the festival that is about abortion, that is about reproductive rights, that is about women's rights to their own medical services. Another film in the lineup is Aftershock, which is a debut film for Tanya Lewis-Lee together with Paula Iselt, who made the film 93 Queen. And that film is about the maternal mortality rates amongst women of color and specifically amongst Black women, which looks at the systemic inequities within the OBGYN field that doesn't necessarily listen to the concerns of mothers of color as they are having complications during childbirth. Other films like Midwives also deal with issues around this. And on the fiction side, we also, going back to the Janes, have a film called Call Jane, which is a fictional version of the Janes story. So, so it's definitely coming in a big way for us to address this super critical, very unfortunately timely issue around women's access to reproductive rights and healthcare. And it's always great to be able to see storytellers, both on the fiction and in the documentary side, responding to historical and contemporary political issues. 
Absolutely. It's a super vital issue. And all these films to us feel additive and tell different sides of the story and are ones that audiences should definitely see just because it's, it's such a, a flashpoint for us these days. And then just to mention the other couple of films in this section that we didn't have a chance to talk about, there is Meg Smaker's film, Jihad Rehab, also The Exiles. Let's go on and talk about the World Cinema Documentary Competition section. What do you want to highlight in this section? Sundance has long been a festival that has taken climate change seriously, that looks at the impact of humanity on the world in terms of ecological and environmental issues. One of the titles that I really love is called All That Breathes. It is a film set in India about two brothers who have been taking care of a bird in India called the black kite. Because of pollution and other forces, the black kites have started to fall out of the sky and they have taken upon themselves to try to minister to these birds. It sort of serves as a kind of microcosmic look at climate change and of humanity's impact on the environment. So these two men uh, and the people that work with them, their small efforts to try to make things right. Um, it is beautifully told. It's cinematic. It's got some of the strongest visual language of the films in this section. It's really just a very sm smart film that I, I hope audiences will check out. I'd also, I mentioned it just in talking about the films about reproductive rights, but Midwives is in the section as well. This is by another debut filmmaker, a female filmmaker from Myanmar. We don't see a lot of, of those. And so we were very happy to be able to support Snow in, in this work. And it's about uh, a small midwife clinic that is run by two women. One is Buddhist, one is Muslim. Um, as people know, there's been a severe strife, both ethnic and religious in Myanmar around these particular religions. And so these women are able to work together and they have a very complicated and complex relationship. They're not always very nice to one another, but they are able to work together to sort of help one another and help the women in their individual communities with access to healthcare that they wouldn't otherwise get. It's a really smart film as well. And it provides, again, that kind of ground level look at a larger social issue. So we're really excited about that film as well. We also may recognize a film by a shortlisted director. The filmmaker who made The Disembarking of Dogs is at Sundance this year with The House Made of Splinters, which is Again, an, another beautiful film. It looks, it's, it's, it's not quite an orphanage. It's in the Ukraine and children whose families are impacted by the violence, by the warfare, and they need a safe place to be. They're troubled children. And the people that are in charge of this institution are just trying to give them a safe space before they can be possibly re reunited with relatives. Really intimate, just very layered, nuanced filmmaking. The promise of that previous film, Disembarking of Dogs, is definitely realized in this follow-up. And obviously, the events in eastern Ukraine are extremely timely and alarming right now. I would just note that this film is another pairing of Simon and his producer, Monica Hellstrom, from Distant Barking of Dogs. And Monica is on the shortlist with President, which she produced. I'd also point out a film from Israel, Tantura, a very controversial subject matter. This looks at the dueling perspectives of the Israeli War of Independence and the Nakba, uh, which is what the Palestinians call the catastrophe of being uprooted from their homes as Israel was being formed. It's a difficult film. It's by an Israeli filmmaker as he looks at this project that was done by a grad student in the 1990s about one particular village named Tantura, a Palestinian village that was essentially decimated. And there was an alleged massacre that took place. When the graduate student published his results, it led to a firestorm of criticism. He was stripped of his degree. He was discredited and it was 
was alleged that he had made up all of this information. However, he did have interviews with soldiers, with Palestinians from the village. And this is what his film is based on, the audio recordings of these interviews with soldiers who were part of these uh, alleged atrocities as they are reckoning with, did this happen? Did it not happen? And how is the history told? The filmmaker knows this is a controversial subject. We know it's a controversial subject. We hope audiences will approach it with an open mind. It is a very powerful film. It's a jaw-dropping film in, in what some of the people in the film discuss. It's definitely something worth people's time, no matter what their politics might be. I wanted to ask um, you about this film, We Met in Virtual Reality, which seems kind of different from, from maybe from all the rest here. It is. This is an exciting film. I will say like earlier, we talked about the submissions process. This is a film that popped out uh, from submissions. We had no idea uh, about this filmmaker. We didn't know this film existed. He's a young British filmmaker who is has made short films or other, other sort of media in the virtual reality space. This film is shot entirely within virtual reality of a platform called VR Chat with VR cameras. So there is no talking heads, no no humans as you would think about them. Instead, you're watching avatars interacting within virtual reality. So there may be a toaster that is hanging out with a fox. There might be a, a human monster that is running around in a car. It's a very visually just beautifully resplendent, creative, fascinating space. This is a film that is in many ways the most pandemically impacted documentary that we have in certain regards because this film was done during the pandemic and it's where people found community. They went into this virtual reality space to find one another and to really turn this space into something that suited them. So there are folks in there that are bonding over similar shared interests. Pole dancing classes are shown, but there are also people that are learning sign language. There are people that are finding love. It's just a really fascinating space that most of us on the programming team, with the exception of Shari Frilo, who spends a lot of time in, in this space because of New Frontier, most of us had never experienced any of this before and found it fascinating. He's a very young filmmaker. I think he's 24, 22. And he really captures this with authenticity. Uh, and it's just exciting. It's just a visually exciting and just a really fascinating look at how people find connection. So that is, is for sure, unlike any of the other films in the lineup. And definitely folks should check out the New Frontier section because there's always some great documentary VR work that Shari and her team put together. There are two films about female musicians in this mm -hmm. section, Nothing Compares, about Sinead O'Connor, and then we have Sirens from Rita Baghdadi. Yeah, both are really fascinating, both very different films. Nothing in Paris about Sinead uh, O'Connor really focuses expressly on the peak of her popularity in the late 80s, early 90s. It is looking at sort of her emergence onto the international music scene, how she as a female artist was in many ways not given respect, how her outspokenness around issues related to the Catholic Church and women's empowerment were dismissed, how she was looked at mostly as a curiosity piece because of her shaped head, asked ridiculous questions about fashion and things like that when she wanted to talk about politics and religion. And it really looks at her as a sort of a pioneer who was maybe a bit ahead of her time based on the sexism of the time. It's really well-made, archivally driven. She participates in the film through audio interviews, but the film is expressly done in an archival fashion. And then Sirens is just a joyful film for us about the Middle East's only thrash metal female band and their efforts to 
have their voices heard. It's against the backdrop of Lebanon in its instability, which is no laughing matter at all. And the joyousness is really just about the music and about their energy. But certainly they're dealing with the seriousness of being in a war-torn country that is under siege in so many ways. It's really ultimately a coming-of-age story around this band and particularly the two leads of this band who have a very complex relationship. Beautifully told, a film that really made us very happy to be able to include in the lineup this year. Well, looking forward to seeing all of those films and the rest in that section, which is truly international. That takes us to the premiere section. I think there are nine documentaries in this section. Last year, we combined the doc premieres and the premieres into one category. So this is a very large section and it's almost half and half. I think it's about nine, nine or 10 titles that are documentary focused. There's some really fantastic films in here. I'll point out a few real quick is uh, the debut feature by Eva Longoria, the actress. This film is fascinating. On the surface, it might look like a sports doc. It is about the big rivalry between Cesar Chavez and Oscar de la Hoya that culminated in a big boxing tournament in the 90s that really also speaks to the identity of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the U.S. It really takes on that question of what is Mexican enough? It's a fight that serves as that kind of a litmus test for folks from within those communities to really think about their identity and think about how does a non-white identity work in America? How does a Latinx identity work within the country? And what happens when you have a Mexican versus a Mexican-American? Who do you root for? And what does that say about you and your background and your upbringing? So it covers covers all of these really interesting questions around identity through the lens of sports, which we all know sports docs are never just really usually about sports, they're about something else. And this does it masterfully, especially from a first time documentary filmmaker who obviously has experience in the larger film and television world. So really great film. Another film I love, and it's one that I hesitate to talk about because the less you know about this film, the better, which is My Old School by John McLeod. This is a, a really just enjoyable film that looks back at the filmmaker's high school years in a suburb of Glasgow in Scotland when a new student came to the school for a couple of years and had a really unusually impactful resonance to the students there for various reasons, which I'd rather not go into, but which are the reasons that this film is made. Really creative use of animation to tell a lot of this story. It replicates animation styles from the 1990s and also earlier than that. For audiences that sort of grew up in that time period, they'll remember like the MTV animated series Daria and the animation looks somewhat like that at times to kind of replicate that time period. It's told also with interviews from other classmates that lived through this experience. It's a fun film. I, again, recommend that folks don't read much about it because it, the joy is sort of in, in seeing the story unfold. Suffice it to say that there are secrets that are revealed and it just makes for a fun adventure. Alan Cumming also has a really important part to play in this film. If listeners will remember the film The Arbor from several years back, where participants would lip sync actual audio interviews, that's what's happening in this film with, with Alan Cumming. It also adds to the larger story that is being told. I definitely wanted to check out it. You've gotten me really excited about that one. And as is often the case, it's not just the story that's being told, but the way the filmmaker is using all the tools to creatively tell the story. Absolutely. Documentaries can be told in so many different ways. The storytelling here it demonstrates that we're not just a genre that's just about talking heads. There's a lot more that can be done to sort of liven things up a bit. And this one does it in a way that makes most sense with the story it's actually telling. So it, it works hand in hand with that aspect of it. It does seem like there are a few films here by well-known figures who are maybe making their first documentary feature. What are some of those titles? 
Another is Lucy and Desi by Amy Poehler. You know, we love Amy Poehler. Who doesn't love Amy Poehler? She's made fiction films before, but this is her doc debut. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz are having their moment. Being the, Card- the Ricardos just came out recently as well. But this is the doc version of telling their story. And it really equally tells both of their stories. Looks at Lucille Ball as a female executive, uh, a female driving creative force in television at a time when women weren't necessarily given that kind of power or that kind of respect. And similarly, on the flip side, Desi Arnaz, as a Cuban man, a uh, person of color, heading up his own successful studio, Desi Liu, one that's responsible for an amazing number of successful TV series and really tells their story both professionally and personally. One of the interesting things here, you know, as documentary lovers, we are always drawn to where are the sources? What, what are people using that we've not seen before? And in this case, Amy is able to draw from interviews with Lucille Ball, these tapes that have never been heard before and drawing from those to let Lucy tell the story in her own words. And it's just a joyous film, like so many others. I grew up with I Love Lucy reruns. I love that show so much. When I knew this film was being made, I knew I needed to see it immediately and it delivered. And Amy also draws from the idea that Lucille Ball gave back to other female comedians. Later on in her life, she would mentor other female comedians. In a way, this definitely reflects Amy Poehler as one of our best uh, comics of this age, telling the story of, of somebody that she really respected and empowered other women to follow in their footsteps. I also wanted to mention two films by Sundance alums in this section. Rory Kennedy has a film, Downfall, The Case Against Boeing, and Rachel Lears has a film, To the End. Rachel directed Knock Down the House, which premiered at Sundance in 2019. So let's go ahead and move on to the next section. Yeah, so Next historically has been a largely fiction-focused section. In the past, we've shown typically maybe one documentary in that section. This year, we have three documentary features in this section, Framing Agnes, Miha, and Riotsville, USA. These are all very different films. I'll start real quick with Riotsville, USA. This is by Sierra Pettengill, who has made fantastic, interesting, archivally-driven films in the past, including The Reagan Show. This film, Riotsville, USA, is one of the sort of art of nonfiction stories that we like to champion and that Tabitha Jackson in particular loves to champion, given her background. Riotsville, USA is about the sort of government response to the riots of the 1960s and their way of trying to figure out how to deal with public outcry and demonstrations. What their response was to use the military to create a model city called Riotsville USA to test out responses to riots, basically military interventions to riots. And so they would have soldiers act out scenes as rioters, and then they bring in from across the country, local police, state, police heads of police commissioners, et cetera, to witness how to respond to these insurrections that were taking place. The film is fully archivally driven, surprising, jaw-dropping moments you're witnessing. It also tells the larger story of what happened in the late 1960s and why these interventions were sought and what it meant for American society and how it led to the militarization of the police. Again, I've used the word a lot, but very smart filmmakers uh, making very thought-provoking work. And certainly Asira is one of those. And then the other films in this section are equally fascinating in their own way. Framing Agnes is by Chase Joint, who made the film No Ordinary Man that was at Toronto two years ago. And this looks at the case of uh, a study that was done at UCLA in the 1960s that was looking at transgender individuals. And that study ended up focusing on one particular person named Agnes, who it turned out had ended up coming back to the study after it was completed and admitted that she lied about certain elements of the story that she told in order to gain access to transition, to gain access to things that she wanted to 
get access to. And she told the story that they wanted to hear. This looks at that story, but also looks at other people that were involved in the study that were kind of buried in the study that, that were not foregrounded. It looks at the complexity of transgender existence. And it looks at the complexity of when you factor in intersectional elements like race. There is a, an African-American transgender individual that wasn't focused on. That person's story is told, others are told as well. And it also looks at sort of the myth of isolation that was sort of foregrounded as this is what the transgender experience is. is they're isolated individuals, they're sad, depressed individuals. This looks at the community that transgender people had even back in the 60s as they were discovering their identities, trying to live their true lives. One of the reasons is the next is that Chase is a really creative filmmaker and he uses setup that mimics talk show formats from that time period. The Edward uh, R. Murrow, This Is Your Life, but the, the sort of the stories that he would tell where he would do interviews. Sort of reframes and creative reenactments how to engage with this history and integrates that within this larger story. So again, takes a really creative look at reframing Agnes and reframing transgender narratives uh, in a way that was presaged in No Ordinary Man. And then finally, Mija, Isabel Castro, this is a film that looks at the Latinx experience and looks at the experience of undocumented women in particular here. The main focus is a woman who is a music manager who focuses on uh, artists who sing in Spanglish, a combination of English and Spanish. She is the sole breadwinner for her family. Her family is undocumented. And so it shows the pressures of a, of a young Latin woman who is trying to take care of her family, dealing with the pressure and the stress of the immigration status. And then pandemic happens, live concert events get canceled, her livelihood is in jeopardy, but she finds another young, talented artist who is in a similar situation. She also has undocumented parents. She also trying to become the breadwinner. Uh, and it shows also shows the pressures on dreamers by their own families as the only ones who are able to work legally to take care of them. It's a really emotional film. It's a very intimate film that will be resonant not only for Latinx audiences, but for anyone. For me personally, as a child of immigrants, it really resonated very deeply with me about the expectations that immigrant parents have for their children. It's one that really hit a lot of us on the programming team, just right at the core of our hearts. I think Isabel Castro, who made it, she's somebody who's been on our radar for a few years, and it's great to see her have a feature at Sundance. So we've got one film each in Spotlight, Midnight, and then we have a special screening. So Midnight is a section for us that, while it is the home of genre films, it's the home of the horror films and really out there comedies. We've shown documentaries there several times. This is the case with this film, Meet Me in the Bathroom. The previous film from these filmmakers was also in the Midnight section about 10 or, or so years ago, the LCD Sound System film, uh, Shut Up and Play the Hits. This film is about the music scene in the late 1990s, early 2000s, that really created a new scene, a sort of exciting energy for a younger audience in New York City in particular. So it looks at bands like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. It's again, another archivally driven film with audio commentary, but it's an immersive experience. And even if you're not necessarily a fan of the bands that are in the film, it's just got the energy and the excitement and that level of kind of creativity is sort of erupting in this film that makes it a perfect midnight film. It's something that people would stay up late to watch but also fills you with energy and enthusiasm for their creative endeavors as well. And then if we move over to Spotlight, Spotlight is our section that is festival favorites in a way. These are the small group of films that have premiered elsewhere, Cannes, Venice, etc. Again, we've shown documentaries in the section in the past. It's often been a very fiction-focused section, but we did include one documentary in there this year, Bianca Stigter's Three Minutes, A Lengthening, which has played at several other festivals. Listeners might be familiar with it. But this is a just masterfully 
told film that demonstrates the power of film to make the past present. It looks at three minutes of footage that was rediscovered not too long ago, I believe in the last 10 years, of a family vacation, a home movie that was taken in a small Polish Jewish village the year before the Holocaust decimated the village, killed most of the inhabitants. And it looks at this three minutes of footage just in absolute detail. Like it it plays it forward and backwards and rewinds it and slows it down, looks for clues to identify who was in the film, uh, looks for clues that indicate social status of people that were in the film. And essentially the title indicates that it's lengthening the inevitable death that these people are going to suffer by really focusing in and turning three minutes into a 90 minute project that really brings back to life these people that were lost in this horrible way. It's something that really touched us. And it's just, a, again, it celebrates the power of cinema in a very strong way. And then finally, we have a new film from Andy Timoner, who is director of two Sundance Grand Jury Prize winners, Dig and We Live in Public. This year, she has Last Flight Home. This is a film that is about the intentional death of Andy's father over the two-week time period that is stipulated by the laws of California before somebody can choose to end their life. The film really tells the story of Eli Timoner, her dad, who started a couple of airlines in Florida and was a patriarch of the family. Basically, his entire family, extended family, joins him at his bedside and talks to him about his past, regrets, express their love for him, and really are with him through this transition process out of this existence into the next. Very personal film. It's in the special screenings because it's something that we want to bring special attention to. It doesn't really feel quite like a premiere title, as it were. And it's something that would also include a larger conversation around the issues in the film, around the ideas of intentional death, around the ideas of, of mortality. It's a, a meditation on what mattered to this individual and to his family as they reflect on his life. Powerful film, very intimate film. It's, it's a film that is uh, universally accessible because we've all lost somebody or will lose somebody, but very much told from the perspective of this family dealing with this particular loss. Well, that one's designated special screening. I think we can say all of the films are special screenings, and I can't wait to dig in myself to the lineup. Of course, this year, again, unfortunately, we're forced to be virtual, and so the festival will be online, so most of us will be watching at home, which is not at all like the experience of being at Sundance and seeing these films with an audience. As we go out here, you could share maybe one of your personal experiences of a special screening of yours from Sundance Pass. I remember very vividly sitting at a premiere screening of Sandy Dubowski's Trembling Before God. Really powerful, important film that spoke about the experience of Orthodox Jews and their relationship to homosexuality. I knew Sandy as a friend as well. That's one of my most significant documentary memories from a very long time ago at this point that I carry with me about the power of Sundance to be able to share these stories, start them off to provide a platform for them to reach larger audiences around the world. But we know Sandy. Sandy is a go-getter and he got that film in every possible place, showed it everywhere. And it really started there. I could see the trajectory starting there and how it impacted audiences. And we really hope that is what our films do in general, all, all of the films that we showed the festival to get them started on the circuit, to get them started to communicate and, and share with audiences. Basil, thank you so much for taking the time to go through this year's lineup. And to our audience, please do go to Sundance.org and explore the lineup, as it says on the website. Apologies to all the films that we were not able to get to, but there's just an amazing selection here. Congratulations to you on all the hard work, Basil, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.